Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Slash Filmcast, the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. I'm David Chen, and with me are... Ventra Hardwire. And Jeff Kanata. And welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. Find more episodes of this podcast at SlashFilmcast.com. Email us at SlashFilmcast at gmail.com. Uh, today, we're going to talk about your movie, Moral Dilemmas, uh, and we actually have a new name for that segment, so uh, stay tuned for that. Uh, we are going to talk about what we've been watching this week, and then we're going to move on into our review of Kubo and the Two Strings. So that's what is on tap today on the Slash Filmcast. Uh, so a lot of exciting things, but first we've got to do some follow-up from last week. Uh, Sausage Party, a movie I talked about last week on the Slash Filmcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, this movie has been raking it in at the box office, making tons of cash. Uh, and is headed towards $100 million, which is very encouraging for those who want uh, adult animation, like adult-targeted animation. Uh, and I remarked last week about how, wow, uh, Sausage Party only cost $19 million to make. That's amazing. Uh, because most DreamWorks animation Pixar movies, you know, they're dozens of millions of dollars, usually $100 million. Uh, and Sausage Party was not that expensive. Turns out there is a good reason for that, and that is that the animators were apparently uh, forced to work overtime for free. And moreover, uh, when some animators quit as a result of mistreatment, uh, they were refused credit in the film. Oh, boy. Uh, so credit was deprived of them, of them in the final uh, credits. Well, that, this is one way to deal with falling uh, movie budgets, right? Mm, no, it's not really that good. But yeah, no. it is very unfortunate to see that. And so uh, just wanted to at least acknowledge that when I said, hey... Uh, the Sausage Party price tag was very low. Uh, in fact, that uh, low cost came at a high price. It's probably so, going to get a little higher uh, after so, the loss. So I guess what you're saying, Dave, is you don't want to see how the sausage is made. Hmm. That's correct, <laughs> Jeff. Good job. It works. It works on so many levels. Yeah. No, like two levels, I think, actually. Um, anyway. A couple more. Thank you for that. <laughs> Thank you for that, Jeff. But uh, to those who worked on Sausage Party, you might be listening to this. Uh, sorry that you have had a bad experience. Send us your dirty stories. Yeah, send us yes. your dirty stories. We'll air them. And What's hopefully uh, this gets to the producers of the film and is rectified in some way. Certainly there's ways for this to be rectified before the film hits uh, home video. So yeah. uh, Our whole new segment could be great for this sort of thing, too. Indeed, indeed. Tell, tell us your dirty stuff. Yeah. Uh, all right. What else? So last week uh, we talked about a, a, a movie moral dilemma that involved someone buying Blu-rays for Bourne films and then using <laughs> those uh, like movie tickets that those Blu-rays came with for movies that weren't Jason Bourne, which uh-huh. uh, was – we deemed it to be acceptable, uh, but it's probably technically not correct. Uh, and someone actually wrote to describe what actually happens uh, when you do something like this. John from Mountain View wrote into slashfilmcast.gmail.com. Hey, guys, love the new movie dilemmas segment, and I especially want to weigh in on the discussion about whether or not it's morally permissible to change your viewing trajectory after getting past the theater's gatekeeper. Oh, I Every like that. Th- that makes it sound so much less bad. When it just, I just <laughs> changed my viewing trajectory. Your viewing trajectory. That's right. The trajectory of my body went in a different <laughs> direction. Every theater chain is different, but as a fellow movie theater employee like Jeff, I think it's important to point out to listeners just what they're risking 
when they decide to switch movies. I was also an assistant manager at one point, and our theater, it was a Cinemark, would actually ban people for switching theaters, sometimes on their first offense. It was incredibly easy for us to figure out when someone was doing this. We could see on our computers how many people had bought tickets for a movie, and sometimes, on occasion, a theater would only sell a handful of tickets or none at all. And in those cases, we wouldn't show the movie. Now, if someone who thinks it's harmless to pop into a theater because the screen will play anyway, you may be walking into a theater that will have its viewing canceled, and you could be punished harshly for doing this, depending <laughs> on the managers who work there. It seems harsh, but I suspect that a lot of people who would try to do this have not-so-great intentions, like sneaking into an R-rated film when they're underage, or paying less so they can see a 3D showing instead of a standard showing. Yes, I've seen people dig into their recycle bins to get those glasses. For that reason, I think it's in everyone's best interest to avoid the high risk of getting banned at your local theater just to save a few bucks. Uh, so that in, email in what from- universe does that happen? Because <laughs> I, I, I've never seen that happen, A. Yeah, maybe, 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 maybe in like a middle-of-nowhere theater. Maybe, maybe yeah. things have changed it's a lot. It's a Cinemark, guys. Cinemark is not like a... I don't, I don't know if you've think. been around the country, Dave, but there there are Cinemarks like in the middle of nothing, just wasteland. <laughs> so there's like a cinema there, All right, guys, and like five people are going there. Let me just say, I think the hubris that's being displayed right now is staggering. Uh, guys, Perhaps I, I, first person, first hand experience. Maybe <laughs> yeah. things have changed in the you know uh, two decades since I worked in a movie theater, but uh, that would never ever happen when I was working in a movie theater. In fact. Most of the frustrations that I received, that I you know had from from working there, came from the fact that the customer was always right, even when the customer was not right at all, and the managers never had our backs in any case like that. It was always like, oh, just it's fine, let them do whatever they want. But they're not supposed to be here, and they're screwing stuff up, and I'm gonna have to clean up. And no, shut up. Who cares? You lose. You're making four twenty five an hour. Yeah. Well, uh, I actually emailed John from Mountain View back because I, I was asking him, you know, what does it mean, John, when you say you could be punished harshly uh, depending on what the managers are who are working there? And John wrote back, the punishment is basically up to the manager who's working that day. I would politely tell the customer not to do it again and instruct them to go back to their correct theater, especially if they bought concessions. But for sure, the general manager would have been pissed if he found out I was being so lenient. He and some of the other senior managers would kick people out on their first offense. And if someone had an attitude about it, our general manager wouldn't hesitate to outright ban them. So I think you're kind of rolling the dice on whether you're going to a theater that cares as much. In our case, even our projectionist would get a quote-unquote thrill out of monitoring theaters to see who is breaking the rules I can just, so he, that. just so he yeah. could bust people over the radio it was kind of the worst how does this person get banned from a movie theater they have a picture up on the side of the they do. They do. <laughs> do not really? sell tickets to this person yeah. anyway, jeff all, all we're saying we're, it's very unlikely yeah. but all we're saying is it's possible and you take You're your life into your luck <laughs> you take your movie going life into your own hands uh-huh. when you buy a ticket for one movie and see a different movie all right that's all it's we're still, saying. still, I think, still morally justified according to the podcast. It's just <laughs> we we cannot condu- you know we can't uh, uh, say what'll actually happen to you. Well, that brings you us are, to you, a- are, you are taken behind the counter and <laughs> drowned in a vat of nacho cheese sauce. <laughs> that brings us to a good point, uh, which is that you know in this segment that we're doing each week, uh, we cannot comment on the legalities of <laughs> anything that you guys are doing. Uh, all we can do is offer our own absolution or not, depending on what your uh, dilemma is that you submit to us. So uh, nothing that we say should be taken as any kind of legal advice. It's just 
uh, ethically. Like, are, and when I say ethically, I mean according to the ethics of the three people who happen to be on the Slash Filmcast. So <laughs> yeah. not even necessarily like broadly applied ethics. As, just, we, as we dispense advice, our first rule is do not follow our advice. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. So I am looking forward to uh, creative punishments. Uh, <laughs> that's going to be great. On that note, uh, we – asked people for their suggestions for uh, a new s- a segment name, right? Like, what could we call this other than just, you know, the weekly movie dilemma? Uh, and a, a lot of people wrote in with some really good ideas. Moral MacGuffins was a good one that I liked. Uh, s- uh, movie Morals Minute. Uh, a lot of people wrote in What Would Bluff Do? Which I think <laughs> is very funny, but uh, A, would, re- would require us to explain it every single time, and B, yeah. I don't know if you guys know this, but Bluff is actually a, a morally reprehensible individual. Yeah. So we don't want to do what Bluff would do. Right? Never it's, do what Bluff does. It's ever. the office, opposite of what Bluff would do. I so, like uh, in the chat room here right now, uh, Victor uh, DiGiovanni says a moral dance-off. That's pretty good too. I like that. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. Um, so a lot of good names. Thanks for writing those in to us at slashfilmcast.gmail.com. The name that we have settled on for now is Cinematic Confessional. Uh, or cinematic confessions, I think, right, Devendra? That's what we agreed. De- cinematic confessions. Yeah. So every week, or there's cinema a cinema confession. Cinema C- confessions. On, cinema confessions. Cinema confessions. <laughs> it rolls off the tongue. It rolls off the tongue. <laughs> uh, cinema confessions, and write into us each week with your cinema confessions, and uh, we will decide whether or not to absolve you. So that is going to be the name of the segment. Or punish you. Uh, that's yeah, right. And, and I like Devendra's <laughs> idea of of we have to come up with. Punishments yes. like, you know, if you went to an actual confessional, you'd have to say, you know, 10 Holy Marys yes. or whatever the hell they do. And, uh, and we could Hail Marys, with similar Holy God, I don't know, sure. uh, full of grace. Uh, yeah, so we could come up with similarly stupid and ineffectual but very strict. Yes. All right. Uh, Have well, you ever flayed yourself with the Blu-ray disc? <laughs> it's not <laughs> get good. Get ready. It's not good. Okay, you get, so you get 1080 P's of pain in your back. <laughs> the P stands for pain. <laughs> <laughs> so on that note, guys, uh, we received a cinema confession to end all cinema confessions this week, and th- this is what I'm really concerned about. I am worried that after this confession. We will not need to do this segment anymore because. But we just came up with a title. I know we just came up with it, but this is like so unbelievable. I, I, I don't even know if I believe that this is actually true. What this person confessed to. Now, this person said that we could use their full name. I refuse to do that, uh, <laughs> and for reasons that'll soon become obvious. So this email comes in from Jason, and they'll just say his name is Jason, and he submitted uh, two cinema confessions this week and uh for obvious reasons i'm just going to stop at one because you know you'll find out in a a few seconds so jason writes in i was seeing the movie son of god which came out in 2014 in order to review it jason is a film reviewer i always sit in the top back row center with no one behind me the nearest people to me were five rows down with no one beside me and i had to whiz i hate leaving a screening for restroom breaks but i can make exceptions if need be However, up to this point in the film, Son of God had shown some bizarre depictions of the life of Christ that struck me as very odd adaptations from the biblical source material. So I didn't want to miss one moment in case there was something really wild to report in my review. I had a cup with me, and since no one was near me, I used the cup to relieve myself. Oh my God. Is this immoral, albeit gross? Because if Love and Weird Jesus movies is wrong, <laughs> then I don't want to be right. 
Um, yes, oh, it's wrong. Yes. Yes. <laughs> what is wrong with you, animal? <laughs> so I know we just oh. finished saying that we wouldn't weigh in on the legalities of this, but uh, there are numerous laws around yes, the country that, that yeah. prevent public urination and actually, like, vulgar display. Brand, you know, brand people who do public urination as if a there sex were kids offender. There, you, yeah, you'd be a sex offender. <laughs> so even though it is a private space, you know, it's still wrong. But please tell me this man at least <laughs> took the cup out of the theater with him left and it, it there it, for it, the usher. <laughs> oh. I, that is a question. That is a question, right? Oh, so, man. so I think none of us think that uh, this cinema confession should be absolved. Yeah. Right? This, by the way, is why I never sit in the very last row because there's <laughs> always some shady shit going on down there. I remember during high school, guys, it was a gross place to be. I think there's a lot of questions for me about how did they pull this off without um, <laughs> w- without there being like a lot of noise. What's that, you know, what's that sound of an empty cup? The surround s- sound is so effective. <laughs> <laughs> maybe he saved right it. Maybe he saved it for the scene when uh, Jesus was getting brutally beaten on screen, <laughs> so that he could mask the sounds of him urinating into a cup. I mean, he, I he had to like time that. it for uh, for every lashing. Yeah, perhaps. <laughs> I can hear that sound. That's particular <laughs> yep. sound of a of a spray of of liquid hitting an empty cup. I can hear it in my head. V- Victor, according to Victor G- Di Giovanni in the chat room, let's hope his cup doesn't runneth over. I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing <laughs> Victor. Uh, I like what Tony Hayes says. Okay, time to end this segment. <laughs> <laughs> You've ruined it. We have reached peak. We have reached peak cinema confessions already. We're only like three to four weeks into this no, segment. No, no, guys, Here's see, the, this, this is a sign. This is a sign that, <laughs> that we need we're gods, needed. Yeah, yes. we're needed. <laughs> we're essential. Here's, here's what makes this the worst, guys. <laughs> okay, what, what makes it the worst, Jeff? Because this guy made, took great pains to explain the physical proximity of other people. So if it had been a full theater, he would not have done this. He would have gotten <laughs> up and gone to the bathroom so annoyed people in the process, yes. Right. But it wasn't like it, it, it wasn't necessary for him <laughs> in, in a slightly different situation, he would have done the right thing. It was just the opportunity to do it, which means laziness. So laziness outweighed decency. Yes. It's so much more nefarious because it's not it, it wasn't an, a necessity. It didn't have to happen that way. He could have dealt with it in a different way and in a slightly different situation he would have dealt with it in a different way he just did it this way because he could <laughs> he didn't stop to think whether or not he should though right I yeah this, this i mean this is up. something that even bleff would not do <laughs> <laughs> all right uh <laughs> l- let me offer a few thoughts on this okay firstly i think we all agree that this was a horrible act that jason should be ashamed of himself and that he shouldn't do it again for a wide variety of reasons, including sanitation, including the legalities of public urination. Do you want to include, be a sexual predator for life? Including <laughs> common human decency. Okay, so so <laughs> let's you know establish all that. We agree that those things are all correct. And so I would in no way ever condone this. Okay? That being said, <laughs> there's a but. Oh boy, there's a but. That yeah. being said, guys, 
it is kind of annoying to go to a movie and then miss part of it when you go to the bathroom. <laughs> That's on you, though, man. <laughs> yeah. Maybe so, don't get the big gulp. Genius. <laughs> so, uh, firstly, you know, guys, sometimes there's people who have uh, problems retaining yeah, that for, much for liquid. Sure. Yeah, for you sure. You know, man. so in that case, you sit near the aisle. Towards yeah, the exactly. So That's right. Out That's right. Yes. That's right, Devendra. You sit near the aisle. And you try to be unobtrusive, and you know you take care of your business, you know, in a in yeah. a very sane and civil way. So, so I'm I'm just saying I'm not saying I condone this, but I understand the impulse behind it because I, you know I've seen movies twice before, like in theaters. I, I'll go, and then like during the first time I go, I'll I'll uh, I'll need to go to the restroom, and then the second yeah. time I won't need to, and it is it's a very disorienting experience. <laughs> it's almost like seeing a different movie because sure. there's like three minutes of movie that I didn't see the first time. And I'm like, whoa, all this connective tissue that I missed. Let me tell um, you something, Dave. Let me tell you something right now. You Listen to me very, <laughs> very closely, Dave. If the process of peeing in a cup doesn't distract you from the movie, you have a very big problem. <laughs> well, some people can refine that skill over time, Jeff. No, no, time. no. You have to have all your attention on that act. <laughs> You better not be able to watch a movie and pee in a cup. That is wrong. Here's the second thing I'll say, uh, is that there's actually solutions for people uh, like yep. uh, like Jason. Uh, there's actually an app called Run Pee. Have you guys heard of this app? Yeah. We talked uh, about that many moons ago. Yeah. And, and, okay, so the disadvantage, I think, and I'm pretty sure it was roundly dis, you know, dismissed on this podcast. Well, more uh, like but, it's not super useful well, when you're I, watching a movie. Uh, well, you have to pull your phone out, right? Yeah. First, firstly, yep. firstly, the, I think the idea is that uh, you would read the run pee before you go in. Like, yeah, I, potentially spoil yourself. Potentially spoiling yep. yourself. That's yeah. fine. That's fine. Like, it's like, it's like, okay, you're making trade offs anyway, right? If you need to, <laughs> if you need to go into a movie and you need to go pee during it, you're gonna make a trade off anyway. You're gonna, you're gonna need to decide. You're gonna miss a part of the movie. Wouldn't you rather control that part, like the part that you miss, and know that it's not an important part? Right. Just go to the bathroom before the movie. <laughs> okay, I'm saying, Jeff, some people can't hold it along. So sometimes, given that's the case, yeah. given that's the case, I'm just saying here's an app that allows you to make a trade-off where you might learn a spoiler, uh, probably very minor, and then uh, and then go see the movie during a time when nothing's really happening. So I, I guess you, you know. So what I'm saying solutions ex- solutions exist. Is what I I'm got saying. a solution for you: a chair that you never leave and that takes you anywhere. And you just piss and shit right in it. Like that. And imagine that's your life. That's the future I want. All right. All right. I, I, mean, I would be just say here. maybe if, if you're not able to go two hours without urinating and it's that much of a problem for you to miss part of a movie to get up and go to the bathroom, maybe going out to the movies isn't for you. <laughs> Jeff, that is it, very that is very unfair, Jeff. It, it happens sometimes. Yeah. I mean, there's like, people yeah. people have all kinds no, of. But you, yeah. yeah when, when it happens and. Oh, you have to accept, okay, well, this is the life I leave. I'm going to have to miss a little part of this movie. Yeah, but yeah. either you d- accept yourself and say, this yeah. is who I am, <laughs> yeah. or you just don't go to the movies. Wait for it to come on video. You can yeah. press pause and go to the bathroom. Yeah, yeah, the yeah, moral yeah. of no, this we, section, by we, the way, we is agree. never sit in the backseat. Uh, <laughs> we agree. Because, it's, yeah. You seem to imply that just because you can't hold it for that long, you shouldn't go see movies. I think you're saying if you can't hold it that long, you just need to accept that you can't see part of the movie, right? Yeah, and, either. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You will no, see that no, movie at another point in your lifetime. This is the year 2016. 
That show will be on VOD in six weeks. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think we agree, Jeff. I think we. But agree. more importantly, we need to come up with a punishment <laughs> for, this, for Jason. <laughs> well, I think the punishment is he needs to go see Ben Hur the remake. Uh, without drink going to a the... big gulp before, so he has to drink a big gulp, and he cannot use the bathroom. He has to sit through the whole thing. Yes, the Ben Hur remake, which, by the way, yes. bombed at the box oh office this weekend. Because that's what society needed is a Ben Hur remake by Tamir Bickman Bittigoff. Okay, <laughs> starring uh, who? Jack Houston, right? And yeah, some other dude? not not some huge Wait. stars for this Ben Hur remake. It's kind of. I, yeah, it's kind of there's no demand for a Benner remake. Unfortunately, we can't get a Black Widow movie made, you know. And there is this useless ass Ben Hur movie out there. I, I really is that Paramount? They had uh, something else that was terrible this year too, right? Uh, Paramount has had a, a mixed year. Paramount yeah. has had a mixed year. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean they've had some good successes too. So it's not not a huge disaster for them. As uh, Nuke Lelouch in the pot in the uh, chat room points out, uh, Kubo actually did worse than Ben Hur too. So uh, yeah. there's your justice. Yeah. Well, anyway, we're gonna get to that. But yeah. uh, thanks. So that's the best we can come up with. Is you got to go see Ben Hur? We're just feeding money to Ben Hur because of this guy's well act transgression. Yes. He he his punishment is to pay for Ben Hur. I yeah. think that's pretty that's pretty punishing. <laughs> yeah. And drink the big gulp before and can't pee. All right, guys. Uh, well, that is this week's Cinema Confession. <laughs> May God have mercy on all of our souls. This is like how uh, <laughs> Review, the TV series, started. It's just It started at 11, and it can only go more insane from here. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. To space, everyone. Indeed. I, I actually, you know, uh, speaking of Ben-Hur, you know, looking at the summer, I would never have guessed that Tarzan... <laughs> Well, firstly, we're going to talk about this in our summer movie wager follow-up mm-hmm. at some point in the next few weeks. But I never would have guessed that Tarzan would have been a, mod- uh, a modest hit and Ben-Hur would have been a failure. Um, yeah, you, 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 you never would have guessed, guessed it because you literally didn't guess it. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. Well, I guess I thought both of them would be failures, but I didn't – of the sure, two, sure. if I had to think one of them would do better, you know, Ben-Hur has like the whole Christian movie tie-in that has done quite yeah. well for many films that most people haven't heard of. So – and Toby Kebbell, man, what's going on with him? I wish uh, he's a super talented actor, super uh, talented, and a really, really else. nice guy. Yeah. He I, he deserves better than than a failed version of Ben Hur. So, but yeah. um, anyway, rough summer, guys. Rough summer. Uh, let's move on from cinema confessions to what we've been watching this week. This week, I had a chance to watch a movie called Tony Robbins. I am not your guru. Is this also Cinema Confessions? <laughs> no, it is not. Oh. Uh, so this is a new movie on Netflix that documents a uh, Tony Robbins seminar called Date with Destiny. He does it once a year. He does a lot of seminars, but uh, he does this seminar once per year. I don't know if he does it once per year because it said 75 over the last 20 years. So he, he may do them multiple oh, yeah. times. Oh, yeah. Multiple – my bad. Uh, I'm already – uh, factually incorrect here, but yes, yeah, s- several times per year, uh, over two thousand people pay around five thousand dollars each to attend the seminar. It took place in Florida uh, over a six-day period, and this movie is directed by Joe Ber- Berlinger, and it basically just is a two-hour compression of this six-day seminar and just kind of sh- takes you behind the scenes, uh, shows you how they plan and execute the seminar. And Did you shows- say compression or commercial? <laughs> Same thing. I think a lot of people have been complaining that it's very much like a commercial. And in fact, if you were going to make a commercial 
uh, or a 90-minute long or two-hour long commercial for uh, Date with Destiny, I don't know how much different it would be than this film, right? Like, it's very commercial-esque, uh, especially towards the end with the music that they use and all the stuff that goes on there. Uh, but all that being said, I really enjoyed the film. I thought it was nuts uh, that you got this level of access. Here, here's why I like the movie, okay? First of all, uh, just the very act of being let into this space. Like, I, I have uh, never read any of Tony Robbins' books. I might have seen him occasionally on on the news. Whenever you see, like, a parody of what a, like, motivational seminar is like, it's based off of Tony Robbins' work, pretty much. Yeah. Like, it's he is, like, the... Uh, gold standard. He has, yeah, the gold standard of, of motivational seminars. Uh, and so on a very basic level, here is a $5,000 seminar that I would have never paid to attend that this movie has given me access to. And <laughs> so just like, like on that level, like you get to see something that you would just never otherwise be able to see because most people don't have the financial resources to pay $5,000. Is, is that a good that. thing, though? That sounds like if uh, Going Clear, the Scientology movie, was actually the first step towards joining Scientology. I don't think I would call that a success. You're right. Uh, although Tony, I would say Tony Robbins' philosophy is far less dangerous than Scientology's. Uh, we don't know. But, <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> so on that level, it's it's just an interesting kind of uh, view into this whole world that I would have never otherwise had access to. Uh, but beyond that, uh, the emotions are real. You know that you see these people; they're all jazzed up. They're they're all getting into this seminar because they want to change their lives and people have breakthroughs and uh the way he he films it joe berlinger films it is he does not cut away from these people having these incredibly powerful emotional moments and just lets these scenes play out on screen for you and these people are burying their souls in front of thousands of people and to hundreds of thousands of people watching this documentary on netflix and uh there's something really moving about that uh and regardless of whether or not you agree with Tony Robbins' techniques, it, it is a powerful moment to see people uh, like just lay out all their problems for you and then feel like they are being transformed for the better. Uh, so for those reasons, I think like the movie is, is very effective and impactful. Now, the biggest complaints about this movie are that it does feel too much like a commercial. Mm-hmm. Uh, that Joe Berlinger, who is a great filmmaker who has made really uh, powerful films that examine the subjects with much scrutiny uh, that he kind of gives Tony Robbins a pass. And I did not feel that way. Uh, but Jeff, you saw this movie this week too. What, what motivated yeah. you to see this movie and like, what did you think of it? Um, my wife and I were both very curious about it. I had heard some friends uh, talking about it. And <clears throat> um, it, actually, my wife, Erin, has done – She through her company, she did a Tony Robbins event years ago. Um, so she had some curiosity about it and we decided to sit down and watch it. And I have very mixed feelings about the movie um, because at one at, – on one hand, it is voyeuristic fun. It is interesting. Yeah. It is fascinating to see – you do feel like you're kind of behind the curtain of a very exclusive thing that I couldn't – I would never pay for. Right. I, I found it like just overall very compelling to watch. Like I don't know if I would think it's a great film. You know, I don't know if I think it's like a an excellent piece of movie making but I couldn't look away from what was happening. You know? I guess um, – but it, it is – make no mistake. It is a commercial. I mean it is – I was shocked that – 
he, he managed to get Netflix to pay him for this because <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It, I don't know if you guys are like me, but when I was young and before there was TiVos and DVRs and time-shifted viewing and on-demand TV, I would stay up late at night and I would just click through the channels and often – you know, in the late 90s, I would find myself at one or two in the morning watching infomercials for self-help stuff just because it was such compelling watching. And, mm-hmm. you know, you just find yourself in that in those wee hours just kind of – I would watch these Tony Robbins infomercials. This documentary is almost exactly one of them. I mean oh, it is – it is uh, – the only thing missing is the, you know, the pitch at the end to send your money. It, it is – it, yes, it is a look behind the scenes at at these things, but it does not. I mean, it it is in Tony's voice. It gives him vo- it, it. It is a pitch to how great this is, and all of the people are advocating for it. And I don't think any of them are being disingenuous. I don't. I, I think they're all in the midst of this experience. But I tell you, I've I have been part of many similar types of things as an actor. You go and you do these very intensive acting classes where you get really close with the people that you're in an acting class with and you share things and you get – you know you have these intense situations. I've also volunteered for something called Comfort Zone Camp, which is a, um, a weekend uh, getaway for kids that have gone through great loss in their life. Um, and it, it's very intense and it, over time and people share and they do these amazing things. And I kept thinking over and over watching this that – these types of things are all the same. There's nothing unique about what he does other than the fact that he gets up and berates people. <laughs> and I was shocked. I had no idea that um, Tony Robbins was such a potty mouth. But uh, <laughs> he – he, uh, I, I'm very conflicted because I think there is a lot of good and a lot of positive in self-reflection and committing to being a better person and all those things that self-help stuff does. But – the title could not be more incorrect. Like he flat out says, I am not your guru and then proceeds to be a guru to all these people every step of the way. And I'm very I, – I, I have an innate sort of rejection of that mentality um, and I think there's a lot of stuff in it that's very dangerous. Like in the course of the movie, he forces a woman to break up with her boyfriend over the phone holding a microphone up to it so everyone can hear. Like that's fucked up. That's a <laughs> fucked up thing to this do. Is getting off on his power there. Yeah, and and there, there are a couple of things like that. And I, I but, do but think- that's that's where I think the movie is actually really good. And, and what I mean by that is, I don't think it's a commercial. Like I, I did not find it to be commercial. It's a commercial in the same way that Jesus Camp is a commercial. Like if you've seen the movie Jesus Camp, it basically yeah. explores like a Pentecostal uh, camp where. You know, they pray around cardboard cutouts of George W. Bush and, you know, talk about how Harry Potter is evil and all this stuff. And, okay, yeah, if, if you believe in that kind of thing, it is a commercial for that kind of thing. But it basically offers a fairly unskeptical view of what he's doing. And if you are skeptical, if you, the viewer, are skeptical, I think you have the opportunity to say, wow, like you just said, Jeff, I find what he's doing uh, here to, de- to be deplorable and to be a scam. And so I think the movie does open that space for you to be able to do that, which I don't think a commercial would do. I, I just feel like presenting an unskeptical view is a tacit uh, endorsement. 
And I think that any sort of responsible documentarian would talk to the talk to the participants instead of just Tony Robbins. They don't talk to the participants at any point. The only time you ever see the participants talking, they're either talking to Tony or they're talking on camera in the in the context of the of the scenario for an endorsement of the scenario. Right. They, they, there's a there are these confessionals that they do, but those are part of the process that they have. They don't ever interview any of the people on their own and they certainly don't follow up at the end of it to say, hey, did any of this stuff stick? Like the guy that was that roared like a lion and we're all applauding that he fucking roared like a lion. And now his, his wife wants to have kids with him. That's not going to last, man. Well, That's not okay, last. okay. I, I hate to be that guy, Jeff, but I don't think you watched the credits of this film, did you? Because they actually, you, you might have like, it might have been that situation where Netflix like fast forwards you to the next thing as soon as the credit starts. Uh, they actually maybe. go into each of those scenarios and say what happened to those people. So, oh, really? Oh, yeah. I so it does. Apologize. So there is that. But yeah, I can understand. But it's like literally the last like two minutes of the film. So I apologize. Um, I, I did not see oh, that. by the way, his life is still hell. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I guess uh, I just differ. Like, and Jeff, your your point of view on this is not uh, is not unique. I mean, I think a lot of people give Joe Berlinger a difficult time about like, well, why were you so skeptical? My position on this is that. I think there is a place in our cinematic world for documentaries that merely observe uh, and aren't skeptical uh, and that give you access into something that you would have never mm-hmm. otherwise got access to. Like that's just – that's my sort of philosophy on documentaries. And sure, there can be – there could be like a Michael Moore-esque takedown of uh, I am your guru. I'm not your guru, but uh, – of Tony Robbins, I should say. But um, – but the problem, the problem so, but, I have, but, Dave, but that's not the movie that Joe Berlinger wanted to make. So fair enough. Yeah. But the problem is that, like I said at the very beginning, I'm conflicted about all this stuff. I, I I don't believe one side or the other. But unfortunately, this movie forces me to sort of put all my chips on one side because the movie doesn't equivocate. Like I have to, I, the response, the onus is on me to try to look at it skeptically if if I'm going to because the movie isn't doesn't provide that perspective at all. And I don't like the fact that I had to be questioning what I was seeing all the time because the it, we really weren't behind the, the scenes. Like it, we were only given the sort of feeling of being behind the scenes in the way that, you know, hanging out with David Blaine behind the scenes is hanging out. Like there was never a, a point where we got to see any candid moments with Tony Robbins. He was always performing for him, for the camera. And that sucks because like that – now I have the responsibility of being the skeptic rather than the the filmmaker sort of giving me this But I think that's rounded fi- I think view. that's fine. I mean we had to be the skeptics for making a murder too. We had to say like, OK, are these people – uh, are the filmmakers in this situation really doing the right thing? Are they really presenting the evidence to us? I feel like documentaries often invite us to be the skeptics. And so I don't think this movie is any different or, or it's not that much different. I agree with you that I think like watching this movie, it really does feel like Joe Berlinger is in the tank for Tony Robbins. And I think part of that is because if I recall correctly from hearing an interview that he got the idea to make this after attending one of his sessions. Right. Uh, the director got the idea to make it. So – uh, you, you know, like he probably has some affinity for Tony Robbins and wants to share what goes on at these sessions with the world, and and I understand that, but but I think he gives you enough to be like, okay, here's a situation where like all these people are just sharing, like all the staff are sharing like 
the deepest, darkest secrets of all the audience members with each other in a staff meeting. Like, how do we feel about that? Is that okay? Here, you know, here's a situation where Tony Robbins is like selecting people uh, in the audience based on what trauma they've suffered in order to further his seminar, like in, in order to move along his seminar. Like, do we feel okay with that? You as the viewer can decide. And, and I think the movie gives you enough to do that. I wish it gave you more. I share your opinion that I wish it gave you more. But ultimately it comes down to, are, like, are we glad this movie exists? Like, is, is the world a quote-unquote better place? Do we have somewhat more insight into Tony Robbins um, as a result of this movie than before this movie existed? And I come down on yes. I think the answer is yes. I, um, I just I, – you know, I think that's a fair point. I think though that if the Tony Robbins Corporation decided to create this movie, it would look very similar exactly. to this I, I agree with you. I agree. It's a little bit too similar for my taste. Um, but it has some differences that I think like make it worth considering. So anyway, uh, overall, Jeff, would you recommend, uh, Tony Robbins? I am not your guru. It's a fascinating watch. That's for sure. It is, it is an interesting thing in the same way that staying up at two o'clock in the morning and watching infomercials is an interesting thing. (laughs) Uh, I found it to be really compelling. Uh, and you know, I think your patience with, that kind of personality uh, is going to determine whether you like this movie or not. Like, if you can't stand motivational speakers, then <laughs> you will not like this movie. Uh, what did Magnolia you think again? Yeah. What did you think about some of the methodology? Did, were you? I mean, it is very like surface level, yeah. cognitive psychotherapy, like yeah. Freudian analysis, psychoanalysis, uh, and some like prosperity theology mixed in there of like, hey, if you unlock your best self, you will do well in life kind of attitude. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's part revival meeting part like it's 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 borrowing from all kinds of things that are very familiar you know like we're all gonna make a noise we're all gonna you know guided meditation all that stuff it's like it's a little bit from every pot and it it all feels a little gross put together like that to me but i also (laughs) kind of feel like well it's kind of cool too yeah and here's what here's what is undeniable okay is uh that tony robbins is a very skilled person i mean you like the energy to ha- to do like a 12-hour-long motivational session on a stage in front of thousands of people and to keep his energy level at like 100% that whole time, uh, it's, yeah. it's amazing. Like, it, like you understand why he makes, you know, tons of millions of dollars, tens of millions yeah, of dollars. Yeah, he doesn't have to do that because he's got all the money he could ever need. Exactly. He doesn't have to do it anymore. So there's something noble about that. Uh, my favorite part of the whole movie is that doofy little dance that he does every time before he goes on stage. Like that, that to me was like, what? <laughs> well, I thought it was funny that he, he basically has like these mini trampolines positioned yeah, he everywhere he goes. He ta- yeah. He has like a mini trampoline wherever he goes. And then like before he needs to get up on stage, it, it, when he's at home prepping and practicing, he's bouncing up and down his trampoline, getting amped <laughs> up, uh, which struck me as a pretty like effective way of like getting uh, psyched up or something. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, so I thought it was very compelling and, uh, I agree with Jeff that it's a little bit too much like a commercial, but I also thought that the movie gives you, the viewer, the option to decide whether to buy into it or not. And um, But it, it is very voyeuristic, and there are times when I'm like, you know, like, do these people know that, like, 100,000 people are going to be watching this one day? You know, like, I, I don't know if they really fully grasp... 
Yeah. I guarantee you there was a sign on the door that yeah. said everything is going to be videoed. Go like they didn't explicitly right. sign any releases, those yeah. people. I think that's right because because Tony Robbins has his own cameras there, you know, right. and they're filming and he probably wants to use that footage for his own promotions as well, you know. So probably everyone needs to just uh like consent to it before they go in uh somehow. But yeah. I don't know. I don't know like that they thought crossing the threshold is is tacit consent. And right. I think that's a little manipulative. Too. Or or maybe maybe it was like at the stage when they signed the contract to to be part of the you know maybe when they're giving the five thousand dollars they need to agree at that point you know who knows yeah. Yeah. but um but I don't think they knew it was going to end up like in this state like in on <laughs> Netflix you know what I mean like I I don't know that uh, like yeah. it felt they're weird. immortalized yeah it felt weird There's... watching that woman. Break yeah. up with her boyfriend in front of like thousands of people. It just is like it's gross. But I could not look. And they away cut all his side out, right? Yeah. They cut his, everything he says gets cut out because I'm I, sure they couldn't get him to sign off. <laughs> <laughs> but I could not look away, Jeff. I could not look away. And there's few films that I can say that about. So yeah. uh, Tony Robbins, I am not your guru. It's on Netflix <laughs> right now. Speaking of Netflix, Devinder Hardo, you've been watching some stuff on Netflix, right? I have. I've been watching The Get Down, uh, the long-awaited Baz Luhrmann show about uh, kind of the birth of hip-hop uh, and the end of disco in the late 70s. Um, I've been looking forward to this for a while. Um, I've been working. I was in San Francisco all last week, so I, I'm a little late to it. Uh, but I've been eager to watch it with my wife because she's also a huge Baz Luhrmann fan. And, uh, you know, I, I mostly like what he's done as well, like Strictly Ballroom, Moulin Rouge. Uh, great movies, really, um, you know, visually interesting films. And I really like what he did with Great Gatsby. Like, we reviewed that movie despite some rough parts. I think there's... Yeah, like, it, was a, a really... it was a solid adaptation of that film, yeah. I thought. Yeah. yeah, I think he's he's just kind of a unique filmmaker. Like, he his visual style is just so flamboyant. It is just so in-your-face and pretty much operatic. I think that's the best way to put it. Like, he's the closest... Uh, I don't know, English language director we have to doing like Bollywood movies or something. Mm, yeah. And uh, the get down feels pretty much like that. And I am really digging it, guys. Like I am fully on board with the madness of this show. Um, but I have to say it is a little rough. Uh, I've seen a lot of people kind of just jump off from the pilot um, because the pilot is all over the place. I think the thing with Buzz Lerman uh, movies and in general is like they always seem like uh they're always like eager to get started right they're always like rushing to get to uh the good stuff rather than kind of setting the stage and letting you really i don't know uh, get used to the situation or something so this show the first 15 minutes of the show are just like crazy like you're introduced to new characters new situations all sorts of things all at once uh but i'll tell you bear with it give the pilot like 30 minutes let it settle down and uh i think you'll find a really just unique looking show um, first of all, the cast is fantastic. The lead in the show is Justice Smith. He's been in a couple movies, including Paper Town. Uh, he, he's basically a kid who is very good at writing lyrics and poetry, and he's trying to, like, you know, find a better place for, I don't know, in his life. Um, and there's a love story at the center of it, because there has to be for every Baz Luhrmann movie, I think. That's just kind of a requirement. Uh, but so many things. There's the love story. There's you know all these kids dealing with life uh, in Harlem in the late 70s. Um, the cast is mostly people of color. They're like one or two white people, uh, including Kevin Corrigan, for some reason. 
I love when that guy just shows up randomly. Like that's <laughs> he's that guy. He's just there for random New York shows. Um, but yeah, it it kind of tries to cover a lot of material. But I really like what it's doing, uh, mainly because the core kids in this uh, are fantastic. And you also have some great supporting actors too: Jimmy Smits and Giancarlo Esposito playing uh, brothers. Uh, in sort of like very different uh, moral standings. Uh, Giancarlo Esposito is a uh, preacher and Jimmy Smith's character is kind of like a businessman, a slightly crooked businessman and they are both like have their own different views of the world. Uh, What's great about the show though is the music. Like uh, it is the undercurrent of everything here. So if you like early hip hop, if you like even disco, like disco plays a big role because they were both trying to coexist uh, in the late 70s. That is the undercurrent of the show. And I love the way the music just kind of works with everything. Uh, the editing is kind of crazy, but almost feels like it almost feels like a DJ trying to edit scenes together where things would be interspersed in ways that are not really conventional and kind of haphazard. But I, you can still follow it. I really enjoyed it. Um, so, so how, many epi- say, how many episodes in are you, Devendra? I'm two, mostly two episodes in right now. And I hear it gets a lot better, too, from people who even didn't like the early parts of the show. But, uh, yeah, I just want to say, like, this thing, despite all the reports we've heard about it being a gigantic mess, and I think it is one of the most expensive TV shows, if not the most expensive TV show or season uh, ever made, some crazy figure going around. Uh, what, yeah, uh, over like $120, $130 million, yeah. roughly. Yeah. And the end result is pretty, uh, it's pretty fascinating. Uh, but I think it does deserve a little patience. Like, you kind of have to just let yourself get into the groove of this show. It is not trying for realism. It is trying for full-on opera. And if you're on board with that, I, I think it does wonders. So definitely worth checking out. Um, I also have to say, like, just looking at the show, I kind of I feel the same way about this as I do about Empire. Um, how does this show exist? You know, when we're trying so hard, we're trying really hard to fight for, you know, representation and quality in cinema uh, and TV. And then occasionally something like this happens where it's like mostly people of color in the cast uh, dealing with topics that reflect, you know, these communities and maybe not communities that uh, white viewers would really uh, follow as much. But the fact that it exists and it looks so great and the actors are so fantastic, it's pretty well written, too. Uh, the fact they exist is fascinating to me. So, yeah, definitely worth a watch. That's the Get Down. It is uh, available right now on Netflix. Jeff Kanata, you've been watching some stuff as well, right? What, what have you been watching? I have a confession to make, fellas. What's up? The uh, Before Sunset, Before Sunrise, Before Midnight trilogy, uh, I had this never seen This must be like your, your 12th uh, rewatch, right, Jeff? No, I, I, I ne- <laughs> they were on my pile of shame. I had never seen any of them. So you saw Everybody Wants Some before watching any of the before movies by Richard That's Linklater? right. Wow. Yeah. I, I don't I know how. We, this is an impromptu cinema confession section. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because, Jeff, what? I don't what's, know what's how they slipped, slipped through the cracks. And even more baffling is the fact that, that these, this is my kind of movie, right? I count maybe my favorite film of all time. It's certainly in my top three uh, as uh, My Dinner with Andre, right? I love – Movies where people just talk. And so the fact that I hadn't seen any of these before is kind of a travesty. Uh, But I rectified it. (laughs) I rectified that travesty. Uh, This weekend, my wife and I uh, watched all three of them back to back. You embarked on a journey of heartbreak. You basically said, this this day, we're just going to feel, yeah, emotionally... A roller coaster uh, of sadness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, there, are, but um, I, my goodness, watching them back to back is 
a remarkable experience. I, I assume you guys watched them kind of as they came out. Um, Mostly, yeah. I, I yeah. actually I saw Before Sunset before I saw Before Sunrise. Oh, um, that's uh, horrible. I, I, it actually so was a, it actually was a great experience. Um, no, it's horrible. I've well, decided. you know, it, it can be like the, the, as much as we fight for like you know viewing things definitely in order. Yeah, yeah. there's some value to doing because because like um, I feel like everything you need to, not everything but a lot of what you need to know about the plot of Before uh, Sunrise yeah. is conveyed in Before Sunset. It's it's a good standalone. Um, yeah. yeah, it's it's very good and uh, it's certainly one of my favorite films. Uh, before, like the middle one is my favorite. Yeah, uh, really, that's so interesting. Yeah. Um, I, I was telling you, Jeff, earlier. I think not only is it my favorite, I think it's one of the best movies ever made. Just like hands down, uh, probably top five for me. That movie is so fantastic. Just like a perfect encapsulation of drama and what makes cinema work too. I I love them. I loved mm-hmm. uh, all of them. I desire more than anything to make movies like this. Like the yeah. the idea of just a two shot where we just sit in a two shot and let actors act and we just kind of mm-hmm. track with them through their day and these long luxurious takes where they can interact with one another and we're not covering it really. It's just wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. I love that. Um, it's why I love Woody Allen movies. It's why, I mean, it's the kind of thing I enjoy. That's why I love the Aziz and Sari show. I think borrows a lot from this sort of like, yeah. But, um, my experience of watching, if if people aren't familiar, these, these were movies made 10 years apart. Uh, first film is about, um, man and woman. Yeah. So we're going to say like, we're going to give away plot details from each of the three films now. Um, Arguably, giving away plot details, like even just the basic plot, is a spoiler for the film. So yeah. if you don't want to be spoiled on any of the before sunset, before sunrise, before midnight films, yeah. uh, then just skip ahead for a few minutes. Or and turn off the podcast and watch some yeah, of the Yeah, go watch them and then come back. That's yeah. cool. It's worth it because uh, I'm very pleased that I didn't even know the premise of the third movie in particular. Oh, boy. Yeah, yeah the uh, third movie in particular is the one you shouldn't know the premise <laughs> for. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, but uh, so, yeah, so d- these are, you know, man and a woman meet on a train in Europe, uh, American meets a, a Parisian on a train in Europe, and they have this magical experience together. And then the next film is 10 years later, they meet up again, and the third film is 10 years after that. Um, first of all, you know, I've said before on the show, and I, I truly believe that uh, there, there was a, um, a Shakespeare series that I, for John Barton's Shakespeare series that had a big impact on me in college. And one of the things that he talks about in that show is that the only important thing for art to deal with is the passage of time. Like that's it. That's all he cares about. That's the, the fundamental crisis of the human condition is the passage of time. And every piece of art in his opinion should be talking about that. Like that's the only thing that matters. <laughs> uh, and, and I, that really stuck with me over time. And um, certainly watching these movies back to back <laughs> you can't help but think about that. First of all, yeah. you're seeing actors age. You know, it's kind of like the movie Boyhood, another Linklater film. Uh, but this is even more powerful because you have a complete experience and then you have another complete experience and then you have a third complete experience that are 10 years apart, same characters, same actors. Seeing them age is a, um, an amazing thing. But also going through that experience of basically the journey of these films is mm-hmm. this – Magical fantasy movie that people have in their heads when they're 20, in their 20s, to 
the reality that you have when you're in your 40s. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like that's the journey. <laughs> yeah. And I think, honestly, I know you guys are big fans of the second movie. I also love the second movie, especially the yeah. ending of the second movie is amazing. And I can't imagine waiting 10 years after that. Yeah, we uh, actually waited 10 years, Jeff. Yeah. It was I, hard, Jeff. It was I can't hard. imagine. But I, for my money, I think the third film mm-hmm. is the best sequel of all time. It's it is very wow. good. It's very good. Yeah, better than Empire Strikes Back. Yes, yes. <laughs> it is the Empire do, Strikes Back of like dramas. Doing what, yeah. doing what they do with those characters, mm-hmm. because in the first film you have this this magical fantasy that is all about ambiguity. Did they have sex? Were, were, would, will they get back together? What is it going to be like? The second movie answers all of those questions definitively, which is a great thing in a sequel. But And then sort of creates another mystery at the end of it of like, do they belong together? Is this messy life? Do, these characters are cosmically linked somehow. Mm-hmm. Will they be together? And the third movie is a miracle yes. because yes. it allows us to actually look at the truth of what happens at the end of Happily Ever After, right? What is actual real life like when you do the crazy thing, jump <laughs> off the romantic cliff, and right. you beat with the person who you think you're cosmically linked to? It is – It's not all take, perfect. It's not all To perfect. take those characters there, to do, to do to them and with them and for them what the third movie does mm-hmm. is – absolutely extraordinary and beautiful and bold and brilliantly executed it, it's i think it's the best sequel of all time because of how what it does to its characters and where it takes these archetypes that they've set up and it brings them grounds them in this truth and it makes all of the things that we learned about them 20 years ago have resonance and ha- be problems because that's what we are as human beings yeah it's 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 an amazing experience watching it back to back. I actually lo- loved watching Ethan Hawke become a better actor. Like it's <laughs> pretty awesome. Um, yeah, I, I highly, highly, highly recommend it. Yeah. If, if uh, Jeff, I wish you were there uh, when we reviewed Before Midnight because I, I I know like you guys liked it too. It was uh, Dave and Joanna, right? And um, yeah, you guys liked it. But I think uh, there was definitely for me i came out of that movie just thinking how what like how did he do this again and do it even like i do think in many ways it is a better movie than uh before uh sunset uh i i think sunset just resonates with me more uh, it was the one that really connected me with these characters uh but this movie like i've rewatched it a couple times too like there is there is just like a magic to this film, like the quiet things that it does. The argument they have at the end of this movie, Ugh. I think, is one of the most like, I don't know, heart wrenching things I've ever seen in yeah. cinema, too. Um, not mainly because I have like, what, 20 plus years connected to these characters. But yeah, he's not afraid to like and they're not afraid too, because um, both Julie Delpy and Ethan Hawke are like sort of co-writers in the series, too. Like mm-hmm. they definitely push the characters in unique ways and i love that you know right before that acts uh that whole fight uh is the first sex scene we have in this entire yeah. series right we don't see young spry 20 somethings yeah. uh you know frolicking in paris we see like you know two middle-aged people who've had a life together who have kids um it's kind of the end of their magical journey and it's just like a very like realistic sex yeah. and that's also kind of fascinating to watch 
I 100% agree. I just thought it was so cool that the third movie in their 40s is the first mm-hmm. time they actually get a sex scene. It, yep. It's They don't yeah. even kiss in the second movie. The second movie is all about them just like sort of like almost touching each other. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I have to watch these movies at least like once a year at this point. It's it's so cool to watch them back to back because you see the things that carry over and the things that are set up 10 years ago that pay mm-hmm. off 20 years, 10, 20 years later. It's but the, the first movie is so beautiful. Like there's I think one of my favorite scenes now instantly ever <laughs> is the scene where they pretend to have a phone. Yes, conversation. I was going to yeah. say the exact yeah. same thing, yeah. Jeff. That's it my is, favorite scene. It, in the, yeah. When they pretend to have a phone call in the cafe. Yeah. Yeah, it is beautifully done it is so you just are giddy with that like we're telling each other truths that we couldn't ever actually say to one another but because of this conceit that we both agreed to we can do it and and it's got that like 20 year old sensibility of belief in magic and Mm -hmm. and all of that like anything could happen it's potential it's all about potential right yeah, and then idealism. and then in the third movie he does that same thing he creates this situation this fantasy situation with her by reading that note that supposedly is from the future and she's just not gonna she's a 40 year old woman she's yeah. not gonna fucking put up with that bullshit anymore it's like <laughs> it, it is everything guys and and I maybe it is so good maybe the perspective of watching it you know mm-hmm. sitting next to my wife as she's you know nine months pregnant with our first child it, it really drove home a lot of that and we I tell you, we were holding hands through oh, most man. of the movie and like looking at each other and saying, I'll never do that or let's not do that or, <laughs> oh, my God, that's just like us or whatever. It's it's a unique piece of cinema. Mm-hmm. And I, I was saying to Devinger before we started, I, I they better do a fourth movie and a fifth movie as the <laughs> but decades you, uh, like on. Yeah, like I, I almost sort of predicted this during Before Midnight. They will probably do another movie in 10 years and you know to hell. That Linklater will find some way to uh, to break our hearts, right? <laughs> yeah. Like one one of them will be dead at the beginning of that movie, <laughs> and it'll be all about the regret of like you know losing this person that you've loved your entire life. Uh, before we end the segment, I just want to say like the one thing. Um, there are so many things in the series that kind of connect to me, but maybe the one thing that hooks me into Before Sunset um, is when they're talking about like both living in New York at the same time. Oh yeah. And that sort of idea of just, like, this, like, cosmic fluke of the person you, like, were sort of meant to be with, or at least the person that you've had this connection with, lived, like, a block away from you for several years, and you just didn't know. That is, that's one of the toughest things I've just ever heard of as a conceit, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty brutal. Uh, it's time to watch those movies again, guys. I, I liked. How did you watch them, Jeff? Did you watch them on VOD? Did you get the DVDs? Yeah, Amazon Prime. It's like four dollars for rental. Yeah. Uh, so you so after that whole speech, you rented them. You did not buy them. No, I'm yeah. No, I'm, <laughs> well, I've never seen them before. Seen. I started renting yeah. them. Um, I, I like Before Sunset the most myself because uh, there is so much in there about regret, like you said, yes. Devinger. Yeah. And this idea of like grand gestures, the like the lines that I'll never forget are, are when Ethan Hawke says, you know, uh, basically like, what if I uh, wrote this book and went on this whole tour just so you would walk mm-hmm. through that door one day and I could ask you where the fuck you were that day. Yeah. Um, and that's totally something I would do. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I, I would totally do some crazy circuitous plan. So that's why you made a movie. <laughs> um, 
This slash filmcast, you know, Jeff, is just so I could confront you today for your not having watched the before series until now. Yeah. How's that for meta? Um, Pretty good. But uh, yeah, for that, for those reasons, I like very much identify with uh, Before Sunset the most. But yeah, love and all three films. Of that movie where where she says yep. you're gonna miss your plane, and he yep. goes, yeah. Uh, <laughs> the so, ending of that movie uh, is also probably perfect, right? I I think just like the best ending. I've and and seen. then yeah. and then the beginning and then the beginning of yeah. the third movie where yep. you start on feet in a in a in a in a, in a airport and it's in French and you're yep. like oh shit we're in fr- we're still in Europe <laughs> there he's there it's it's like it's uh, it's beautiful yeah, it was it, it took quite a lot of doing you know like how you avoid uh, like Star Wars trailers <laughs> Jeff. It took a lot of doing to avoid the premise of Before Midnight before that movie mm-hmm. came out. I avoid everything, Dave. I'm like a I'm like a, a cat. I could jump yeah. around. I, uh, yeah, I'm dip. just I'm just saying, like, the, just ignoring the because the premise is a spoiler for that film. It so. is, I guess. Yeah. I guess. I mean, I, yeah. You guys know how I feel about this. Yeah. Uh, it, it was totally fine going into it. Um, but that moment I, was pretty amazing. To not pretty, not, not pretty knowing where they moment. end up. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. But also, like, I love. So I've seen that movie more times than i can count and by this point it's like also yeah when she says you're gonna miss that plane and he's like yep that is i i kind of love that too because i even if we didn't get a third movie that right there is a perfect ending for them yeah for sure agreed agreed so that is the before trilogy before sunrise before sunset and before midnight and uh it is a blind buy which jeff doesn't seem to grasp <laughs> uh, evidently uh Davinger thinks the next movie is going to be called Before We Die. <laughs> Before um, the Wake. Yeah. yeah. Uh, all right. That actually would probably happen. All right, yeah. Jeff, we are running a bit long. Um, do you want to just yeah, give us fine. quick just... thoughts on nah, Jod and Claude? Okay. We can skip it. Thumbs up or thumbs down? Jod it's really Claude, good. Van Johnson pilot? It's really interesting. I mean, I, It's I, funny. Yeah. It's funny. All it's right. clever. It's, got a cl- it's, it's not a short description. It's not I a think short you'd like it, Dave. Yeah. All right. Well, that is uh, the John Claude Van Johnson pilot on Amazon. Uh, I've heard they have a strong uh, slate of pilots recently. It's uh, three, right? Now. I, uh, I love Dick. Right. That's another yeah. one. That's the Tick. The Tick. Yep. Yeah. So and a lot tick. of good pilots going on right now uh, over at Amazon. Anyway, let's move on. We got to get to our review of Kubo and the Two Strings. Before we do that, we got to thank all the people that donated to our show this week: Michael L from Sanford, North Carolina; Brian S from Wales, Australia; Nicholas E from Chicago Heights, Illinois, who wrote a very uh, lovely email thanking us for what we do here on the podcast; and also Matthew H from Devon uh, in the United Kingdom, who writes this message with his donation: "Please don't give any of this donation to Bluff Blanada." He sounds like a real tool. Jeff Devendra and David are cool, but to reiterate, none to bluff. That guy's a d-bag. Thanks. I couldn't agree more. I could not uh, agree more. Yeah, I've been trying to get away from that d-bag my whole life. Mm, mm. Well, he's just uh, like always behind you for some reason. He's always in my rearview mirror. <laughs> New subscribers to our podcast at the rate of two dollars per month are David August, Andrew Gormley, uh, Angel Garza, David Liu. Ross Johnson and Joseph Johnston, thank you guys so much for contributing. If you want to help us defray the cost of seeing films and talking about them and putting on the show, go to slashfilm.com, click on the Slash Filmcast tab on the side of the page, and use the PayPal links to donate to our show. Let's move on to our review of Kubo and the Two Strings. If you must blink, do it now. Pay careful attention to everything you see. No matter how unusual it may seem, If you look away, even for an instant, then our hero 
will surely perish. It's time to follow my own path. My name is Kubo. This is my story. That was from the trailer of Kubo and the Two Strings, the newest film from Laika. Uh, I'm going to read here from the plot summary on IMDb. A young boy named Kubo must locate a magical suit of armor worn by his late father in order to defeat a vengeful spirit from the past. Uh, so I'm going to – let's just get the elephant out of the room right now, guys, uh, about Kubo and the Two Strings, which is – this is a movie that obviously traffics heavily in uh, Asian imagery and kind of Asian-style storytelling. And I think Ron from Seattle, Washington, really captured you know, some feelings about this that I re- relate with. Um, and so Ron writes, and I saw Kubo and the Two Strings, and I had to write in and respond to Dave's comment about the lack of Asian actors not being as big of a deal to him as, say, whitewashing in live-action films. Naturally, I would never dare to tell an Asian man how he should or should not feel with regards to how race is portrayed on the big screen. So I'll share how I, being an African-American, felt. It was very distracting to see all those Asian characters with what were clearly white voices coming out of them. If this were an animated movie that took place in Africa, Harlem, or South Central L.A., and the entire voice cast was white, it would bother me. It would just be weird. Uh, My email is obviously a play on the movie's title. His email is titled Kubo and the Two Asian Actors. I know technically there were more than two Asian actors in the film, but in my estimation, there were only two with any significant level of prominence. Kari Hiroki, uh, I'm sorry, Kari Hiroyuki Tagawa and George Omai Takai. Yes, I caught the homage to his famous <laughs> refrain in the movie, and both of them had throwaway bit parts. Yep. I would argue that the lack of Asian actors in this film is even more disappointing than the casting of Char- Scarlett Johansson in Ghost in the Shell. There are already so few opportunities for Asian actors to have leading roles in any major motion picture that any chance to hire them should be taken, especially when there is less financial risk at hiring lesser knowns than it is with a blockbuster budget movie like Ghost. No one is going to see Kubo because Charlize Theron and Matthew McConaughey are in it. This is a movie deeply rooted in Asian culture. Why not cast someone like Sandra Oh as the mother? She even looks like that character. And come on, Matthew, all right, all right, all right, as a samurai beetle? It's a comic relief character. So it seems like Fresh Off the Boat's Randall Park would have been a great choice. Or even B.D. Wong. And why not get one of the kids from Fresh Off the Boat to play Kubo? And you have George freaking Takei in this movie, arguably one of the world's most recognizable Asian actors. And for all intents and purposes, he's an extra. WTF, man. Why wouldn't you have he's him? Why wouldn't you have him as the Moon King instead of Ray Fiennes? Especially since George is renowned for the quality and tone of his voice. Hello? I thought the movie was fine. I wasn't nearly <laughs> as thrilled with it as Jeff Kanata. I'd give it a solid B+, but it was, in my opinion, another terrible example of Hollywood missing an opportunity and the point, end quote. He makes, a, he makes a good point about it. It's not just that white people were the voices. It's the whitest people. <laughs> <laughs> it's Matthew McConaughey, for God's sake. That guy And Charlie Theron. And freaking Stark. Like, yeah. yeah. And my bigger issue, too, is it's not just the voices, because that's a big one. Uh, but even among the writers, even among the animation department, like, look, look at the credits of this movie. Um, I sat through it uh, towards the end. Uh, there's also that great uh, version of uh, My Guitar Gently Weeps, right? Um, and Beautiful. it is kind of shocking to me that there aren't there don't seem to be really many asian participants in this movie other than a a japanese guy who's listed as a consultant 
Right. Uh, and uh, for, for those who are like, well, that's because there aren't that many Asian people in animation in general. I mean, if you look at a movie like Disney's Moana, uh, which comes out in November, that is an example of a movie that uses uh, this kind of native uh, imagery uh, and it, like has a lot of actors from that culture in the actual film. Right. Um, so it is possible to do. Uh, it's just not what they chose yeah. to do here. I've, I've had a lot up. of discussions around this too, like because I'm a big fan of things like uh, Avatar, you know, and Legend of Korra, and those are great things, which also traffic a lot in uh, Asian influences and culture and everything. But they also have diverse casts and diverse like writers. Like you can you can make it up in different ways. It's not like we're saying everyone has to be voiced by Asians either. Uh, but at least make an effort. It's not hard. <laughs> make a freaking effort, people. I, Try. I, I think, you know, the thing that is uh, probably most bothersome is just this idea that, like, choosing Matthew McConaughey was the best choice for this movie because right. it feels like something that, like, DreamWorks yeah. Animation would do in, in an, an earlier, less good era uh, when they would often just cast, like, the most famous people, not necessarily the, the best voice actors. Well, the, the right. real irony is the movie did not do well, and uh, <laughs> certainly Matthew McConaughey and Charlize Theron didn't help, but the catch-22 is – if the same movie had come out with Asian actors and still not done well, people would have been like, well, if we had yep. Charlize Theron and Matthew McConaughey in it, it would have done better, <laughs> which is, is no patently winning. false. There is no winning. <laughs> right. Um, I, yeah. It, it is very unfortunate that this movie did not do well. Um, meanwhile, Suicide Squad continues to tear up the box office uh, along with – It's got the Joker. See, yeah, the, you could have put the Joker in this movie. It would have done better. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, so anyway. All right. So they didn't make a great effort at including people of Asian descent in the movie. That kind of sucks. Putting that aside, what did we actually think of the film? Let me hear from you, Devinger, because you haven't talked about it yet. Yeah, uh, I, I actually really liked it. Uh, and I'm kind of – I know everybody is really – always falls over themselves to love everything like it does. Uh, I really liked Coraline. Uh, Paranorman just never really worked for me as a film. It, I just couldn't connect with it. But this one, yeah, this kind of traffics and things that I enjoy too. Like I love uh, big samurai adventures. Uh, I love things with like you know uh, supernatural characters and crazy mythologies. Like uh, this movie does things. It kind of reminds me of Blade Runner a little. Like the uh, the tears in the rain speech. Like people just say things offhand uh, that are kind of like I what. I would love to hear or see like how that happened. And maybe we could talk about some of those in spoilers. So I love that it paints this world really well. Uh, Kubo is a great character. And I, this movie, um, it does a lot of things that most animated movies don't right? Or even most movies, like there are quiet moments. There's this movie kind of starts with a very heartbreaking and like sorrow scene. And there are quiet moments of sorrow. There are quiet moments of, like, joy. Uh, this is a movie that takes its time, which I like. Um, I don't like that uh, a lot of, like, his movies basically feel like video games in a way. They feel like fetch quests. Um, this movie kind of does that as well. And I think it, it does kind of play around with that conceit. Um, so there is that. Like, narratively, they have, I don't know, to shape up a little. I remember Coraline was also about, like, collecting some things, right? Just yeah. the, the storytelling writing. is a little bit uneven, yeah. I would say. And the writing sense. also feels very forced sometimes. I, a lot of, some of it's subtle and some of it is very on the nose and very, like, uh, I don't know, telling you how to think rather than painting a picture for you. Yeah. Uh, so I think, like, it just still has some work to do when it comes to, like, polishing their writing. Um, 
as an adventure movie, as a movie for kids, I think it's it's a fascinating movie. I just wish it didn't leave such a dirty taste in my mouth. Like that's the thing. Like I I enjoy this movie, but damn, if it isn't like emblematic of all the problems we often bring up on the show. Uh, Jeff Kanata, your thoughts on the film? Well, I mentioned uh, last week or whenever it was that we talked about it uh, how much I adored this film. I, I you know I really enjoyed Zootopia, but I think this is my favorite animated mm-hmm. film of the year. Um, so far, and it, I, you know, I guess I reacted more positively to the video game aspect of it. It really felt like that cinematic version of the Legend of Zelda that I've yeah, always wanted. Yeah. I mean, yeah, got to get your armor, you got to get your sword, uh, and the action set pieces done in stop motion. It, no one has ever done that, and it's mm-hmm. because it's really hard. It's really, really hard to do action uh, one frame <laughs> and then move a little dude. <laughs> Uh, and these guys are wizards, and the the level of technical wizardry is mind boggling. It's so beautiful to watch. My only gripe, I think, with regard to the technical aspects, is that I think uh, you know Leica has been experimenting over the last several films with adding a level of CG into the mix, yep. and I kind of wish they wouldn't. I understand that they're competing with CG films, and the slickness of CG films, I'm, I'm sure they feel like there's a pressure there to keep up with. But I would prefer to see the rough around the edges. I don't want them to get rid of hinges and, and joints and I don't want them to smooth out things. I'm fine adding some you know, glow or you know, s- s- other effects that, that CG can allow. But I think there is some smoothing of the movement that they do um, digitally, which I wish they would not. Uh, because I yeah. love the fact that these are physical objects at, in, in motion. I love the the feeling of that diorama world, and I I want I don't ever want to forget that that's mm-hmm. happening. I kind um, of feel that way too, Jeff. Like I noticed this is it's a very pretty movie, and the stop motion is beautiful. But then there are times where it's very very pretty. I'm like, wait, that can't be stop motion or a set. Yeah. That has to be some weird CG stuff. Yeah, and they and they're you know they're upfront about that. They've definitely uh, talked about how they've added CG in this film more than they have in the past. But I I would I would hope that they pull back a little bit from that because their their art form is all too rare and it is so magnetic mm-hmm. and powerful. I just love it. But from a story perspective, I also love the movie. I I had such a great time with those characters. Uh, and the the magic that was around every corner, and it, I love a world that just is sort of built on magic, and everybody mm-hmm. is magical, and that's just accepted. And those early scenes where he's telling the story with those origami creatures are just so fun, and that music and that rhythm and how that is all expressed, that world, that that little uh, town that he that he lives in, I, I wanted to be there, I wanted to hang out there. I, I it, it's um everything that you want out of a uh, family film, uh, I, the sense of adventure, the sense of character. Uh, I just adored it. Yeah, I think you know the opening scene where this woman is in, on some boat with this massive storm, and then she takes out a uh, the the two strings or whatever mm-hmm. that instrument is, and like plays it, and it like parts the sea. You know, right from that moment, I was hooked. There is a visual magic to this film. It shows you things that. Not only you've never seen before, but they sh- just that you you couldn't even have imagined before, right? Yeah. That she has a shamisen, by the way, Dave. Oh, shamisen, yeah. So yep. there's things that just like 
I didn't even know I wanted to see this. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, someone came up with it. Someone conceptualized it. They visualized it. They built it, and they made it live on the screen. And uh, that is really amazing. And uh, that the visual wonder alone was enough to propel me through the rest of the film. So many creative concepts about like what his instrument does and uh, how it behaves and the design of the world and uh, the quest that they're trying to, to embark on. It all just struck me as really uh, original and unlike anything we've seen in theaters this year. Uh, and uh, I really love the movie. So mm-hmm. despite the problems that we've had with it, like from a political standpoint, I think that uh, it just is dazzling. And There's I've, stuff in spoilers too to bring up for sure. Sure. So yeah. uh, also fantastic score. You know, uh, yes, like really, yes. really beautiful stuff, like uh, just s- breathtaking stuff that uh, uh, like stands on its own, in my mm-hmm. opinion. So it's suitably epic. It reminds me of uh, the Powell stuff from, uh, you know, How to Train Your Dragon. Yeah, ex- that's exactly right. That's mm-hmm. uh, I-, I feel the same way. Jeff, I agree with you. I-, I wish that there was a bigger divide between stop motion and CG, but I feel like market forces, man. Yeah. That, you know, like kids these days, they want their CG animation and they want it shiny and smooth. Uh, and th- it's so scary to me how poorly this is done this opening weekend. It, this movie deserves to be seen by everybody. And, you know, people are, yeah, I don't know. It, it, may be, it may get legs once it hits, you know, streaming or something. But yeah, it's it's shocking how badly it's doing. It's theaters. currently like on its current path. If it does as well as box trolls, it'll make around thirty seven million dollars, which is Ugh. pretty rough yep. um, for a movie of this size and scale. And uh, yeah, that, it's a huge bummer. It's a huge bummer. But th- that being said, Jeff, this summer has claimed a lot of. Uh, a lot of f- films, like just a lot of uh, quali- quality, has been the victim. Uh, well, a lot of movies have attempted to, you know, be big films this summer, and many I of them have can been beat fe- Suicide Squad. Yeah, right many, now. many of them have been felled, you know, and uh, this is just another casualty in what has been like a really overpacked summer, uh, full of like would-be franchise starters or franchise continuers that just have not mm-hmm. done very well. And this is basically a would-be franchise starter they did set up like what could be a series of movies if uh if this thing had done better kubo and the three strings kubo and the four strings sequel so any other thoughts before we move into spoilers guys um i did uh just want to point out rudy mara does a really good job in this like yeah uh, yeah unrecognizable unrecognizable and also her role has to be you know she's playing like these uh creepy witch sisters basically and just so like cold and yeah, creepy in just the right way. So definitely loved her contribution. Yeah, those witch sisters. I mean, the idea of doing characters that wear a mask in yep. stop motion yeah. is such a really crazy, interesting idea. Uh, because then the mask breaks at one point. And you can see the mouth moving beneath it. It's like it's so freaking brilliant. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, let's get the spoilers for Kubo starting right now. Now you're looking for the secret. Can I see this coming? No. But you won't find it because, of course... You're not going to see this coming. You're not really looking. I have been puzzling over how it works. You don't really want to work it out. Who's in the box? I have been dying to tell you. I want to tell you my secret now. You want to be fooled. A couple things, guys. Um... So I I love that this movie kind of builds up to the big climactic uh you know big boss battle that you were expecting. Uh it does actually have that battle too. 
Uh, I'm wondering, what did you guys think of the final solution there for uh, for dealing with Kubo's evil grandfather? Because <laughs> that almost, yeah. I can understand trying to be different narratively here, but I'm also like, I wonder what the other people in the village were like. I was like, guys, did we did we talk about this? Um, <laughs> he kind of destroyed my village and my family. He's and so I disoriented don't wanna, now. I don't want to welcome him into my hometown. Like, what did you guys think about that? I think what people found disturbing about it was the idea that they they like erased his memory, thus making yeah. him a completely different person. There's that too. Like they they yeah. removed his agency, you know, yep. which is always a terrifying thing to do to anyone, even a villain. Although I, I mean, it's between that and killing him, like every other goddamn <laughs> movie. So I think I, I will buy removing his agency. I'm more just kind of wondering, like, you're how wondering why the, the townspeople just like signed on for that plan. Yeah. It's like, guys, what if he? What if he remembers? You're all dead. <laughs> I think it's we're supposed it's supposed to be an Anakin Skywalker type of yes. deal, you know, yes. like post Vader. It it's very Star Wars, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but you were you bothered by it, or did it rub you the wrong way, Devendra? I mean, it was just it was confusing because my brain was trying to processing. Oh, oh, this is happening. Why is this happening? Why is nobody raising any questions? This is very confusing. Oh, this is just like Darth <laughs> Vader, except Darth Vader earned his redemption. What did this guy do? Nothing. So I think I think this movie is trying it tried really hard to give us a unique ending. And that's actually something Leica has kind of struggled with. Paranorman, I think, had a really like bombastic, also video gamey ending. That one had platforming. Uh, I think Leica really likes video games, guys. Um, (laughs) And I think this is the most interesting and unique ending they've done. I just wonder about the mechanics of it. Right. I don't know if I quite believe, you know, how they settled all this. And also, like. I, did you guys did you guys assume that uh you know um those two other characters were his mother and father because i figured the beetle were was just given the type of story this was um but that scene where they reveal that matthew mcconaughey's character was indeed his father and then five seconds later kills him and then 30 <laughs> seconds after that kills the mother <laughs> that is pretty brutal that is pretty brutal yeah i did that did occur to me as well and he didn't and i I also feel like we should have had a little more time there to just really (laughs) absorb what just happened um because yeah then he moves on to oh i guess i gotta fight my grandfather boss now guys i I saw this like i also saw a matthew mcconaughey movie where he meets a loved one and it's just like peace out like three minutes later yeah but enough about interstellar (laughs) guys the ending of interstellar okay Boom goes anyway, the two strings. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, what I liked about this movie was its themes. It's focusing on the idea that – so I, I remember watching this um, uh, one, one person show called uh, Letting Go of God. Uh, have you guys heard of this? Did we talk about this before? Is that the one with um, – what's her name from Saturday Night Live? Julia Sweeney. That's right. Uh, yeah. uh, Julia Sweeney uh, raised – like uh, the, the plot – line of letting go of god like is raised the roman catholic comic julius sweeney chronicles her conversion to atheism uh this is one of my favorite you know pieces of media that i've ever encountered uh i think it's like very profound and very well done and uh you know it's very much like kind of in the style of like the primary instinct like it's just a person on stage talking mm-hmm. uh for like a couple hours and uh the the whole journey of Julia Sweeney in that uh, in, in Let It Go of God is like the idea is like when you're a Christian or a Catholic, people live forever. Like when they die, their soul still exists, right? Mm-hmm. And they're they're either in heaven or they're floating around or whatever. But that like people 
are still like they they have eternal existence. And one of the most profound losses to her when she became an atheist was the idea that when people die, they're gone. Like they 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 don't have eternal existence, right? If you don't believe in God, you don't believe in souls. That people just go away. But that the way she came around to accepting that was the idea that like, hey, people aren't really ever gone um, because they they live within you when you remember them and you think about them and you carry on their legacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a very moving point when she made it in uh, Letting Go of God. And it's very moving in Kubo and the Two Strings when it happens as well. Yes. You know, yeah. is the idea that um, your parents and, and your family, like they are, they exist within you. Even mm-hmm. though your parents are gone, like within you, like they yeah. still live somehow. Although and he accepts that idea very quickly. Like, <laughs> that's right. He, that's right. he didn't have the whole like life affirming. I wanted, that's what I wanted to see, right? Okay. Oh, th- that's your dad. Oh, your dad's dead. Oh, that's your mom too. And your mom's dead. <laughs> oh, what do you do? What, how do you cope with that? You and, wish, yeah, like, you wish there had been a little bit more. I, I think they could have, something. they could have uh, figured out a better way to convey that theme. I agree. Yeah. But the way that the movie references it with him like kneeling with the lamps and everything like that, um, it, you know, it's like, hey, sometimes like w- like when your parents are gone, you need to carry on their memory. Yeah. And, I mean, um, he, we, he, basically the movie needs to earn its title, right? Because the two strings are their strings of his parents. Right. Um, that should – it's a, m- a moving moment, but I think it could work even better. I agree. If, like, we, I agree. But, I, you know, I think yeah. the idea is that he's gone on this like huge journey um, and – at the end, he ha- has like matured to the point where he can vanquish the enemy, right? Yeah, it's yeah. very broad stroke storytelling. Yeah. It's not there. I don't find there to be a lot of nuance there, and I think the movie could have been stronger if there was a little bit more nuance. But I appreciated the message it was trying to send. It's a good message that like I- I'm cool with kids watching. Certainly, message, much yes. m- like much cooler with them watching this than Suicide Squad, which many kids are watching. Uh, or Number saw- one movie in America, guys. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So sad. Yeah. So anyway, uh, those are my thoughts on the ending of the film. Uh, <laughs> overall, really loved it, and I think you guys like said everything I'd have to say about it. So, uh, anything else, or shall we wrap it up for today, guys? Uh, watch it in theater. Well, I guess at this point they're listening to spoilers, so whatever. <laughs> uh, I may end up seeing it again. Uh, I just hope, like, uh, for like as next thing, like maybe they need different writing help. Because it's weird to see the same problems cropping up uh, from I think the same they need, studio. I think they need a new PR company because the, <laughs> the poster is terrible. poster is not good. The title is not strong. Yeah. Uh, I, I hate to be the guy that you know, nitpicks that stuff. But like people don't go see things called Kubo and the Two Strings. Like that doesn't – it doesn't – I don't yeah. know. People will see whatever the hell you want them to see. Uh, yeah, if you market it right. And I don't think this is, like I've seen the trailers and the poster, and this is one one reason it is good to like kind of look at these things sometimes because I think the the trailer is fine, but yeah. it doesn't really sell the adventure of like what this movie is and the potential of it. I'm just and, saying you could have called it Suicide Kid. <laughs> but would have seen it. Uh, Orphan, I, Orphan with the sword. I also saw. Uh, I, I would also just say, stick around after the credits because they do show yes. how they made one of the big set pieces in the film. The so amazing, skull. and it is really Super impressive. Cool. So I, you know, I, I think I told you guys I was at an event where they had all those things oh, wow. set up, and I was able to walk around. The ship made out of uh, leaves mm-hmm. is enormous, and the 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 skeleton creature they had the full size one there 
It's like two stories tall. It's the largest mm-hmm. animatronic tre- creature ever in a stop motion film. Uh, it, it's awesome to see all that stuff up close and the level of detail is staggering. Super cool, Jeff. Super cool. Uh, well, anyway, that's our review of Kubo and the Two Strings. It is out in theaters right now. Stay tuned to hear what we'll be reviewing next week. In the meantime, Devendra Hardor, where can we find more of your work on the internet this week? Oh, you can find me at, at Devendra on Twitter. Uh, I write about technology at Engadget.com. We're also bringing back the podcast there, so check that out every week. How about you, Jeff Kanata? I have a couple of other shows you might want to check out. I talk about video games on a show called DLC, which you can find at 5x5.tv slash DLC. And I have a science comedy show called We Have Concerns, which you can find at wehaveconcerns.com. And find all my stuff at davechen.me. Find my film The Primary Instinct at theprimaryinstinct.com. You can buy it on VHX. Uh, You can also watch it on Hulu. Thanks for listening to the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. Next week, we're going to be reviewing Don't Breathe, which is one of my most anticipated films of the summer, uh, even though it's just like a looks like kind of a, a genre B-movie. Uh, you anticipate very strange things, Dave. I'm yeah. really psyched for this movie, guys. I'm, it looks uh, good. I'm looking yeah. forward to hearing what you have to say about it. Uh, so, yeah, that's uh, our uh, episode this week. Thanks for listening. We'll see you guys later. Sanctuary Spa, we know how stressful life can be. Rushing around, no time for us. That's why we've developed a new generation of body moisturization for modern life. Apply Sanctuary Spa Wet Skin Radiance Jelly straight from the shower for daily exfoliation and hydration with our new two-in-one gel, locking in three times the moisture, leaving your skin radiant. Make it part of your routine. Just shower, apply, and dry. Sanctuary Spa Wet Skin Radiance Jelly. Available now exclusively at Boots.